Hi, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of So As I Was Saying. I hate to do this to you, but it's just me again. All right, this week we're going to be focusing on your scapula and pectoral lab. Let's get right to it. So we're going to divide the muscles you saw in this lab into those of the pectoral region and the scapular region, starting with the pectoral region. These are the muscles that attach the upper limb to the trunk, and they move and stabilize the pectoral girdle in response to movement at the glenohumeral joint. They can be divided into the posterior thoracoappendicular muscles that we covered in labs one through three, and the anterior thoracoappendicular muscles, which we're going to talk about right now. So the first anterior thoracoappendicular muscle is pectoralis major. Pec major functions in adduction, adduction, and medial rotation of the humerus, as well as flexion of the humerus. Think back to episode one, where we talked about trapezius adding the arm back to the body and the rotation of the arms that use the armrests of your chair. Flexion of the humerus takes place at the shoulder joint and looks like putting your arm out in front of you to shake someone's hand. Consider that pectoralis major has two heads, the sternocostal head and the clavicular head. This is important in injuries of pectoralis major that can occur in bench pressing. In the action of bench pressing, the sternocostal head fibers are maximally stretched and therefore can fail before the fibers of the clavicular head. A patient with this kind of injury will present with weakness in adduction, a deduction, and internal rotation of the arm, as well as tenderness and bruising over the pectoral area. Another very unique clinical correlate that features pectoralis major is Poland syndrome. This is a genetic defect that's characterized by underdevelopment of the chest muscles and short webbed fingers on one side of the body. It's hypothesized that the atrophic presentation of pectoralis major is due to lack of blood supply during development. Pectoralis minor acts to protract, depress, and stabilize the scapula. Overuse of pectoralis minor can result in bench presser shoulder. This is a painful tendinopathy of the pectoralis major tendon that occurs with repeated use in actions like bench pressing. Innervation of the pectoral muscles is very important when considering lesions. You heard in lecture that pectoralis major is innervated by both medial and lateral pectoral nerve, where pectoralis minor is innervated by only medial pectoral nerve. So if you have a lesion to the medial pectoral nerve, you will have a loss of function of both pectoralis major and pectoralis minor, but a lesion to the lateral pectoral nerve will only affect the function of pectoralis major. Serratus anterior functions in protraction and upward and lateral rotation of the scapula and is innervated by long thoracic nerve. This is a very superficial structure that is prone to injury. When long thoracic nerve is damaged, a patient presents with winged scapula. I like to think of the function of serratus anterior as moving the acromion out of the way so that the arm can rotate upwards towards the head. With a lesion on physical exam, this will look like an angel wing on the affected side where the scapula does not move when the arm is extended up to the head. The last pectoral muscle you saw in lab is subclavius, which anchors and depresses the clavicle. All right, now on to the muscles of the scapular region. Most superficially, you should have seen deltoid muscle. Deltoid is innervated by the axillary nerve and carries out a lot of functions, so let's divide them up. At the clavicular part of deltoid, flexion and medial rotation of the arm are carried out. At the acromial part, 
abduction, a beduction of the arm beyond 15 degrees occurs. We'll come back to this. Lastly, at the spinous part, deltoid extends and laterally rotates the arm. An important note to make here is with the lesion to axillary nerve, you'll lose motor function of deltoid muscle, but the axillary nerve does not function in sensory innervation, so you would not expect to see any sensory deficits with this lesion. Next up is teres major. This muscle is innervated by lower subscapular nerve and functions in adduction, a deduction, and medial rotation of the arm, just like pectoralis major. Next, teres minor is innervated by axillary nerve and functions in lateral rotation of the arm. So if you add in the long head of biceps brachii with the teres muscles, you will complete the borders of an area known as the quadrangular space. In this area sits the axillary nerve and the posterior humeral circumflex artery and vein. Clinically, it's important to be aware of the location of this neurovasculature because the area can be compressed by trauma, fibrosis, or hypertrophy of one of the surrounding muscles that can have effects on the functions of the axillary nerve and the posterior humeral circumflex artery and vein. If you listen closely, you'll notice I did not mention the lateral border of the space. This is the surgical neck of the humerus. This is another clinically important anatomical location because a fracture at this site can damage the axillary nerve and the posterior humeral circumflex artery that wrap around it. So back to muscles. Next is supraspinatus. This is innervated by the suprascapular nerve and is the initiator of arm abduction, a beduction that is further carried out by deltoid that I mentioned earlier. So let's take a look at this. The first 15 degrees of abduction, a beduction, are accomplished by supraspinatus. Deltoid then takes over and brings the arm up to 110 degrees. The last movement to 180 degrees is carried out by trapezius and serratus anterior. This is because going above horizontal requ requires scapular rotation. We have lots of parts at play here for one action. This is important because loss of action can occur then by lots of different lesions. So if you were to see a patient who could not abduct, abduct, their arm at all, you'd have to consider that the lesion is most likely affecting suprascapular nerve and supraspinatus muscle. If a, pa if a patient can begin abduction, abduction, but cannot go further than 15 degrees, the lesion is most likely affecting the axillary nerve and deltoid muscle. And if a patient cannot get their arm above the horizontal, the lesion is most likely affecting long thoracic nerve or spinal accessory nerve, meaning it's affecting serratus anterior or trapezius. Another clinical correlate for this area is subacromial bursitis that is caused by tearing of the supraspinatus tendon. Bursitis is inflammation in the bursa that sit between the bones and the tendons that function to decrease friction. In this case, a patient will, will be able to abduct, abduct their arm. However, it will be very painful. Next, we have infraspinatus, which is also innervated by the suprascapular nerve and carries out lateral rotation of the arm. Next, you have subscapularis. This muscle is innervated by the upper and lower subscapular nerves and medially rotates and adducts the arm. So the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis muscles are known as the sits muscles or the rotator cuff. 
Together, they support the shoulder joint and reinforce it on all sides except inferiorly. This gap in reinforcement makes dislocation of the shoulder much more likely to occur inferiorly. If you know someone who plays baseball, you've probably heard of a rotator cuff injury. This is the tearing of one or more of the sitz muscles tendons, most commonly supraspinatus, at the site of attachment on the head of the humerus. All right, and that is all on muscles for now. In our first episode, we told you that origins and insertions would become more important this week as we moved into the arm. So I want to take a step now into osteology and focus on some of these origin and insertion locations. Um, Because as you're listening and going through lecture material, you should pay attention to these sites um, in the context of an injury that causes avulsion of muscles at these sites. So a great example of this is the intertubercular sulcus of the humerus in which the long head of biceps brachii lies, or the deltoid process of the humerus where deltoid muscle attaches. Both of these muscles could evolve from these points upon injury and result in loss of their function. Osteology also becomes important in the fracture at certain locations as they can have different effects, just like I mentioned with the surgical neck of the humerus. This also applies to the radial groove of the humerus. In this groove lies the radial nerve and the deep brachial artery. So a fracture at this point could damage these structures. Another important piece of osteology for this lab is the suprascapular notch. At this point, the superior transverse scapular ligament divides the suprascapular artery and nerve. The artery goes above and the nerve travels below. A good way to remember this is to think of the ligament like a bridge. The army, A for artery, goes above on land, and the navy, N for nerve, goes below in water. A problem that can arise here is suprascapular nerve entrapment. This is compression at the notch by the ligament, assist from the shoulder joint, or calcification of the ligament after trauma. So the last thing I want to talk about in regard to this lab is some of the arterial supplies in the pectoral and scapular areas. And before I do that, I want to suggest that you begin drawing diagrams of branching arteries to become familiar with each branch and the structures they supply in the case that if you were to occlude an artery, what downstream branches and the things they supply would be affected by this occlusion. So another thing to be aware of when you're considering arterial blockages is the potential for blood to continue distally past a blockage through an anastomosis. There's a great example of this around the scapula where branches of the thyrocervical and subscapular arteries, the transverse cervical, the suprascapular, the subscapular, and the circumflex scapular arteries will anastomose to allow an alternate path for blood flow when the subclavian artery or the axillary artery are blocked. And lastly, I just want to touch on here about the cephalic vein. This is a superficial vein that will eventually drain into a deep axillary vein. Be sure to identify the cephalic vein that sits in the deltopectoral groove. This location is key for identifying this vein on your practical and also clinically as the cephalic vein can be used in cut down venous access for the placement of leads to the heart in cases of pacemakers and defibrillators, as well as for chronic indwelling catheters. 
All right, and that is all for this lab, for this pectoral and scapular regions. Um, be sure to practice all of these muscles and their big four, name, nerve, blood supply, and action, and get those down for your test that's coming up in a couple weeks. Next week, I'm going to have an episode that includes your next two labs together. So it will include the axilla and arm lab, as well as the cubital fossa and forearm lab that go together. So that is going to be a hefty episode, but it's going to be full of clinical correlates. So be sure to listen in. Talk to you next week. Thank you.